I'm Aaron Broadus, and you're listening to the Maine Fly Fishing Podcast. Join me as I talk shop with some of Maine's most influential and passionate fly fishing folks about our diverse fisheries that make Maine such a special place to cast a fly. Welcome to episode 8 of the Maine Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm very excited to have John Peterson on the show to talk about life as a four-season fishing guide in Maine. Join me as John talks about guiding and fishing for multiple species from the Mount Katahdin region all the way to Maine's coast. We will also be discussing the ongoing hot topic about fly fishing and social media. Our hopes are not to spark a big debate, but rather educate people on ways to post what you're passionate about without putting more potential pressure on some of Maine's already popular fishing spots. town outside of Dover Foxcroft, uh, town of Sebec, Maine. Um, I have to preface where Sebec is to people because everybody thinks I say Quebec. Um, everyone thinks <laughs> I'm Canadian when I say that. So I always tell people it's outside of Dover Foxcroft, went to Foxcroft Academy, you know, did the whole, you know, small town thing, uh, playing football, sports. Uh, you know, Sebec was really not a big town at all. Um, so it was really, you know, an outdoor paradise for me. Um, we lived on a, you know, road with a few houses and thousands of acres out the back door. Um, it was really kind of a place that, you know, it was a great place to grow up because, you know, I was an outdoorsy kind of kid. So every waking moment I was outside, you know, playing in the woods and, you know, chasing the animals and chasing fish. Um, yeah, it was, you know, it was, it was great. We grew up on a Christmas tree farm and my dad was a general contractor. So there was always something to do growing up. Your dad, so your dad sold Christmas trees? Yeah. I didn't know yeah, that. I, was, uh, I grew up, uh, you know, he started it from the ground up, uh, you know, started clearing some land, you know, he, back in the 80s, he was cutting wood for, you know, to support the family and, um, you know, uh, as a byproduct of that, all the seeds that were dispersed from cutting the fur, all of a sudden these Christmas trees started sprouting up and he, you know, kind of started thinking about it and he had some friends that were doing it. And so we started clearing some more land and kind of working on the Christmas trees. So from an early age, I was selling Christmas trees out the front front yard. That's um, awesome. Sharing Christmas trees in the in the summer and cutting trees in the fall and planting trees in the spring. I mean, it was a great great way to grow up. And you know, I was always in the outdoors, so every day was just you know putting the boots on and going out and working on the Christmas trees. Yeah, and I got to be honest with you, like I've I've heard of Sebec, I've heard of Sebec Lake before. But yep. I mean, if you asked me before I talked to you, before I knew you, if you asked me where Sebec Lake was, I'd be like, I, I got no idea. <laughs> I feel like it's just up up north somewhere, but um I do know where Dover Foxcroft is and they like speaking of football just cuz I was a former football coach. They had a pretty good football yep. team, didn't they, for a long time? You know, it was it was good, you know, we won the state championship when I, I sat up my sophomore year. I had a back injury. Um, and then, you know, junior year, we went to states. We lost to Lisbon. I still have a hard feelings about that one. <laughs> um, and then we graduated, like, a ton of seniors that year. And my senior year, we were, like, five and six. Yep. Um, and then we ran up against Stearns, and they had a powerhouse team that year, and it was, like, embarrassing. I think Pete Richardson, I think that's his name, he played for University of Maine as a starting right there, left tackle or something like that. Man. Uh, that man could run faster than all of us. And we couldn't. It, it was it was fun, but it was kind of a, 
you know, I wasn't the best football player. I just like to hit people. Is Stern so. is Stearns Millinocket? Yep. Yep. Were you a were you a linebacker? <laughs> what what gives you that idea? I mean I'm short, stocky, sweet, you know. Right. I, I was a I was a I was a middle linebacker. Yeah. And uh when we when we went to the five formation, I was the nose guard. Nice. That's funny because because you say you know I thought you were a linebacker, but I, the second thing I was gonna say is, eh, you might you might be a nose tackle, nose guard. You know, you, you got that build, man. You do. Yeah, you know, like we always used to say, short, stocky, sweet. I don't have a neck, so yep, it was that's, easy to put the helmet on, you know, hey, shoulder pads. It all fit together. That's perfect, man. But that's not fun when you're taking on Division One linemen. That's for sure. I, I remember at that playoff game, we, we ripped his jersey and we just still couldn't stop him. It was like embarrassing. Yep. It was, yep. Yeah, we're all running as fast as we can to get get to the uh, running back that's broke off an 80-yard touchdown run. Peach running right ahead of us, and we're like, "Oh, this has been fun." That's awesome. So, so growing up there, though, just to go maybe to go back to the fishing side a little bit, did you? Uh, how how old were you when you started fishing? Uh, as as early as I can remember, um, our family vacations. We were always going up Route 11, and we would always camp up in Joe Mary Lake Campground. Uh, so that's where I grew up was, you know, we were always out in a canoe, oh. you know, dunk, dunking worms or, you know, we were chasing brook trout in small rivers and brooks and streams and nothing, nothing complicated. It was, it was a family vacation and, you know, we, you know, half the time we were diving for mussels on the beach and, you know, that was, you know, we didn't travel, you know, we were we didn't have a lot of money, but we really had a good time as a family. We'd always, you know camp out and I, that was like the highlight of my summer so we'd go like maybe a couple times a year for a week at a time and my dad being my dad he still worked so he'd wake up at breakfast with us and he would drive to the job site work all day and come back for dinner you know it, that was the type of mentality that he had like, absolutely you know all day we would just go chase fish and oh. you know that's just where it started for me but it was never never about fly fishing when I was a younger kid though how old, so how old are you when you picked up a fly rod? Do you remember? So, well, the first time I picked up a fly rod was my brother and I were using it as a whip. Um, it was my dad's old Cortland fiberglass eight weight that he just bought on a whim. And, and I remember at some point we broke the tip of it. I'm not sure if it was six inches or how many inches we broke. But it was in high school I started thinking about fly fishing. And it really wasn't, you know, it wasn't an altruistic thing. It wasn't me saying, well, you know, I really would like to pick up an art form. Um, at the time, it seemed like the law book was becoming more convoluted, more complicated. And I saw a lot of old timers always had fly rods in their trucks. And it was because it was easier. You, yeah. know, you could show up to a body of water, you could have a you know, wallet of flies, and make a few casts, maybe catch some brook trout for dinner. And it was easy. So you didn't have to read the law book half the time. And I was like, you know what? I'll try it. So, you know, at the time, you know, the closest fly shop for me was me and Guy Fly Shop. And I remember Danny Legere actually fixed, fixed the tip of my fly rod for me. Oh, that's so an that awesome actually, memory. So that, that was, you know, back in, I want to say 97 or 98. That kind of shows you how long I've been fly fishing. But, yep. And my first first reel, I bought, I bought a Fluber Metalist from Van Raymond Outfitters and Brewer. So I put together an eight-weight fly rod, weight forward, Cortland 444 line, and, you know, started flailing at the water back in back in high school so that's I hear, where it started for me I hear a lot about that Cortland 444 line and I, I have no idea what it is but it seems to be just an old classic huh it's an old classic and, and again I had no idea what I was doing I just 
you know, the, the, these guys at the fly shop told me to do. And I said, all right, almost by the line. And I think they put it on for me. And if they didn't, I put it on backwards, I'm pretty sure. Nice. Um, <laughs> you know, because I think the Fluger, you know, had a very specific drag at the time. And I had it backwards. Because I remember the first big fish I ever caught on it. I'm like, why is this thing just pre-spooling all the time? So, um, you know, I made a lot of mistakes, but it was a lot of fun. Um, but, you know, that was my start. It was back in high school, probably 98, 97-ish. I can't really remember specifically, though. So, so kind of in high school, and then uh, where'd, you, where'd, you go to, where'd you go after high school? Uh, I went to the University of Maine at Orno, and yep. I studied history. History. Yep, I have a BA in history. Man, you and I could not be any different in that department. I can't stand history. I my dad is like a huge history buff, and he's just been talking history my whole life, and I get so bored by it. It's not even funny. <laughs> I, I can I can relate. Um, the problem with me is like you know I went that was a bookworm. I just I I studied studied studied, and you know, I even had graduate level courses as an undergrad, and you were reading so much. And my wife makes fun of me now because. I can't pick up a regular book. It has to have a lot of pictures because I just, it, it ruined it for me. Like I, I can't always read for fun anymore because it just, it just wore me out. And yeah. just, you know, reading that many history books in the course of four and a half years, um, was, was a little much. Yeah. It was, was too much for me. Yeah. And I, uh, it's funny, man, when you talk about reading, I mean, the only thing I read these days is I used to read a lot of like, fishing how-to books or fly fishing how-to books but now it's more i just love hearing stories i like reading fly fishing stories you know oh yeah i uh john Rock and, and those type of stories and um that, that kind of keeps my you know i like a lot of fiction too you know a lot of fun fiction i like uh randall probear um he's a main author i read a lot of his stories i've heard of him game wardens game wardens and stuff like that because yeah. he was a game warden up in up in um near Madagascar, yeah. Um, his his books I like; they kind of keep my attention. So that's awesome. Do you ever read? Uh, do you ever read Edmund Edmund Ware Smith or Ed Smith books? Uh, no, no. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love him, man. He talks a lot of hunting too, but uh, oh man, it's just great old main stories. He's from down east, and it's just cool stuff. So. It's funny. I was just thinking back to you talking about growing up, doing a little spin fishing, and then getting you know getting into fly fishing. And I think when people think of fly fishing, they think of like you know the the nice drift boats, the Sims waders, you know the nice gear and all this stuff. But here in Maine, like we have a lot of guys who are you'd look at them and you you know just just by looking at them you go, all right, that guy is like a beer drinking worm dunker, you know. And and a lot of time, man, those guys will have a fly rod in the back of their truck too, you know. Absolutely. And that's what I grew up with. Um, you know, the the guys that would get off work and you would just say, Yeah, this guy, I don't know, he'd bring out a beautiful fly rod and he could cast a beautiful loop and so funny you know, to me, man. <laughs> yeah, and and you and you you know, I remember Sebek River was always full of salmon growing yeah. up and you know, the guys would go down there and catch one for dinner or, you know, some of my dad's friends would just catch them for fun and just he'd never have a net and he just Never lift, never actually take the fish out of the water. You just kind of pop the hook out, and, and it was just, it was fun. It was a release for people, and you know that that's that's kind of you know that's how I I viewed fly fishing at the time. It was just something to do, and and it was it, like I said, it was it wasn't artistic for me. It was just it's another tool in the toolbox, and you know, I, I some of the, the bodies of water and the you know Katahdin Ironworks and Joe Mary area were 
you know, fly fishing only waters. And right. I really wanted to fish them too. So that was also the other reason why I wanted to learn how to fly fish. Absolutely, man. You grew up like so close to some beautiful country. I'm, I, I fished up in Moosehead area there and even above Moosehead and some of those ponds are oh, just fantastic. It's absolutely breathtaking. And, you know, when I really started fly fishing was in college and, you know, I'd come home every weekend, uh, you know, work for my dad or work all summer for my dad. And I remember I'd get out of work and I would not even, I wouldn't have dinner. I'd drive up through Greenville. Um, and if, if any shop was still open, I'd grab some flies and just, you know, either go up to Brasswell Lake or Brasswell Dam on the Moose River or East Outlet. East Outlet was really where I cut my teeth fly fishing because, I mean, honestly, what better place other than some place that has a ton of fish? Right. So right. that's really where I started to learn a little bit more about So that was, that was during college for you when you kind of started to venture out into fly fishing a little more? Yeah. And, I mean, the, the place that I really you know, have a lot of great memories was obviously Sebec River. Um, and that was, you know, where I really put the first few pieces of how to catch a fish on a fly. I was actually watching an old poacher cast his lure across the current and he was retrieving up the seam and he kept catching fish. Well, the problem was he wasn't releasing all of them. But, sure. you know, after he left, I was like, you know, all the textbooks, you know, was you got to present that streamer you know, sideways, like the, the fish has to see the, the profile of it. So on this river and a lot of the other rivers up there, it's, it's almost impossible to, to present it that way. So seeing him cast that water across that current seam, I was like, oh, let's, let's give it a shot. And immediately I started hooking fish. That's I mean, awesome. Not, not, la- not landing any fish. And that came like another hour later when I moved to another pool. And it was like kind of that, the light switch came on. I was like, okay, this, so I started using that same technique in other places, um, East Bellet, Roach River, um, the West Branch of the Penobscot. Those are some of the easy techniques that I started with. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't glamorous. It wasn't cute, but it caught fish. Right. That's awesome, man. I mean, it's funny thinking about that. Like I've watched, uh, I've watched a lot of Kelly Gallup stuff the last couple of years. You know, he's the big, he's the big articulated streamer guy. And all he yeah. did was take a, he just took a Rapala, you know, a Rapala, sorry. Um, I can't even say it because I've never fished one. But he just took a, he took a Rapala and basically made it into a fly, you know, and, and that's so cool, yeah, that's, man. That's the one thing everyone keeps talking about is like, what, what are we trying to do with fly fishing? We're trying to make it as close to fishing an artificial you know, like the people that are doing those lips now, um, you know, Gunner, Gunner's doing that type of stuff. He's having that lip and, yep. you know, it's, it's imitating, you know, a lure. So really what you're trying to do is get as close to fishing with gear, but you can, you know, it's the same argument of like, oh, that's a strike indicator. Well, that's a bobber. Well, let's, let's call it what it is. I, mean, I know. It's, it's really bob- imitating. It's, it's imitating spin fishing in a lot of ways, you know. And, yeah, um, I mean, I know you're a guy. I know you're a guy who does a lot of both, and just just being honest on the air here. I mean, what's a what's a catch ratio of using spin gear to fly gear for you? I mean, I mean you're going to probably talk three fish to one, three you know, to one, three yeah. fish on the on the spin, yeah, one for the fly. Um, now, and, that's, and I'm just I'm using like let's say I'm using um, bass fishing as a, as a, an indicator. Yep. And, and part of it is you can get three, four, five more casts than you can with a, you know, a fly rod. 
So you're covering more. You're covering more water, essentially, right? You're covering more water, and you're putting it out there more times. You know, like if you have a bass that might have struck on the third cast of a fly, but you've only got two, and you're already gone. Right. Whereas with a, we'll say a Mephtaglia or a Rapala, and you you pop over there, and you just you get it there five or six times, and you strike because I mean you just kind of instigated something in that fish. Um, it's just it's just a game of numbers. I mean, I, I would say that that's as easy of a comparison as you can have. Is that it, it is just a straight up numbers game. Yeah, and I mean, it's funny that you you know just talking about smallmouth. I mean, something I didn't grow up traditionally fishing for them, and I have I've I've fly fished a lot for the last you know five years or so. And um, sometimes I'll go out with a buddy who bring a spin rod. I got a fly rod, and you know he'll have on some like pattern where he's just like ripping it across the top on his spin gear and he's just hammering fish after fish after fish and i'm like i can't even imitate that on a fly rod like i can't move it that quickly you know what i mean yeah and, and uh and, and again it just kind of boils down to like i said action action yeah yeah they just want they just want something that's in, if they're in the zone right they're just like i do you think they're like pissed off and they're just like get out of my territory or are they is that how they really think food moves you know, honestly, I think it's a trigger mechanism, something that, you know, it, it unlocks something that they see. It's an action. It's a weakness. Because, um, again, you can have certain situations where you pause the retrieve and it looks like it's dying. And then yeah. that just, it, it's an explosive, explosive strike. I mean, I've seen salmon do it, too, where I've retrieved a Rapala right to the shore um, on Wilson Stream pouring into Sebec Lake. And I had a salmon chase my Rapala right up to the, my feet on the rock ledges, like Unreal. you know, no, no joke, like fifteen times until I got the right, the right retrieve. He was just inquisitive, and then all of a sudden, I did the dying type of Rapala, pause, pause, and then a quick escape, and he just exploded on it. Yeah. So I think it's it's a trigger. It's, a, it's something that instigates that fish to. It's recognizable to them as prey. Yeah, absolutely, and and just to go back to smallmouth because I think. I look at smallmouth fishing as kind of like, oh, they're just bass, they're just bass. But at the same time, in the last five or six years, it seems like smallmouth bass have really been kind of on the uprise. You know, fly fishing is not all about trout anymore. It's a lot about saltwater. It's a lot about musky, right, like these other species. And how have you seen kind of smallmouth bass growth in terms of fly fishing here in Maine? Honestly, um and I got to be totally honest with you. Growing up, we we considered them trash fish. You sure. know, where I grew up, um, you caught a bass; it was it was in the woods. Um, and I would say over the last seven eight years, you just see the the proliferation of you know bass as a mainstream sport fish that people are going after, especially down here. Now, down east, I would say that's that's been that way for a while. Uh, but down here, I think you know people are really kind of catching on and. And I like to think of smallmouth bass as it's a vacation fish. It's a, it's a fish that families can book a vacation trip. And that's why I think it's been more popular. And it gives kids a great opportunity to catch fish where, you know, you don't have to bundle up and try after a trout or a salmon in, in April. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, let's be honest. Our, our trout and salmon are really shoulder, they're shoulder season fish. You know, they're they're yeah. generally your colder months. You know, July and August are not great trout and salmon months, especially in southern Maine. You know, maybe further up in northern Maine, it's it's still holding on, right? But I mean, smallmouth are your like you said, it's your vacation fish, and uh, 
They just give you great action, though, and I didn't realize, like, to be honest with you, I love the fight of them, and I love the, like, I love fishing with poppers and, like, topwater stuff. It's just, it's cool action, you know what I mean? You get a lot of it, too. It's not slow. Yeah, I mean, again, I think it's also having the right right fly and the right action. Um, I know everyone likes the topwater bite, but the visual attraction of the streamer heat is, you know, second to none. That's awesome. Um, and obviously, you know, Mad, Mad Prosser, uh, Greg Levante, main fly guys, um, his craft bait fish has been one of my staple flies since he showed it on his YouTube. So ah, I love um, it. Sharing a little that, secret, that, John. I like it. That has been um, a go-to, and it's such a visual eat because, you know, the fish is on a floating line and heavy current, and the, the fish just smoke it, especially the ball white. That's been my go-to on the Android. So secrets out sorry listen i i love greg but let's not pump his head any bigger okay he's got enough followers on instagram he doesn't need any more so uh that's fine <laughs> I, I just need to get him on the boat on the intro so he can give me a few more secrets not on the youtube channel so he would love to go out with you i know he would he's he's all yeah, about it so that's awesome um all right so let's go back to your timeline so you know college sounds like you were getting out fly fishing a little more hitting some of those bigger staple rivers around the moosehead region and uh, like you said, the West Branch of the Penobscot. So what happens for you after college? So after college, life kind of hit me. Um, I was At the time, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I had a history degree. I thought I wanted to teach, and I went back to my, you know, where I graduated high school, Farshops uh, Academy, and I kind of put together like an internship with, you know, with my mentor, uh, Doreen Emerson, and teaching interpersonal communication to freshmen students, which was a complete disaster because, you know, teaching kids about communication at that age and personal bubbles and conflict resolution really, really didn't, you know, jive too well. Oh, trust me. I, I know. Being a middle school teacher, I, I get it, buddy. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and my wife's going to kill me for that, but, you know, she was, a, she was a teacher at the academy. You know, we, she graduated the year before me. She was from East Millinocket and she went to the University of Maine at Farmington. And, uh, you know, I, you know, again, you know, we got to know each other a little bit, and, you know, we went on a date, and the first date, I, I kid you not, she's like, well, what do you, what do you plan on doing? I was trying to go to Montana. I had applied to, like, 40 high schools out there. I wanted to become a guide out there. I wanted to, you know, teach, and she's like, oh, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to Springfield College for my master's in athletic management, and I leave in, like, three weeks. I'm like, wow, this is, this is a great, great start to this relationship. I, mean, I don't know where this is going to go. Right. But, you know, again, I was like, all right, you know, let's play it out. Let's, you know, again, great dinner. Well, at first I said, let's go for drinks. And the funny story is I go, oh, I walk into her classroom and I, and I say, hey, you know, would you like to go out for drinks sometime with me? She's like, sure. And I said, she's like, well, when? I said, I was my watch. I said, how about in a couple hours? There wasn't many places to go out and go over Foxcroft. So I think it was Able Bloods at the time. And, you know, we had a great, you know, you know, drinks and that the conversation was good. So it turned into dinner and, you know, she, she ended up moving down to Connecticut, which is over the border from, you know, Springfield, Mass. Her family's originally from Connecticut. Her mom's from Naugatuck, Connecticut. And, uh, I, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to stay in Sebec, living at home. I'm the kid, I'm the guy that graduated college and is living with his parents. And I remember I was on a fishing trip. I go down like every other week just, you know, spend time with her, you know, keep, keep the relationship alive, you know, because obviously I was, I was kind of smitten from the beginning. Sure. So, 
keep, keep the relationship alive. I'd take a Greyhound bus down and she'd meet me in Hartford and, you know, she, we, were, we were living in Windsor Locks at the time. And I remember I was, I was on a fishing trip with my Uncle Bill and we were up uh, north of uh, Chisuncook Village up on the West Branch, uh, Pine Stream. There's this beautiful rock campsite overlooking the river. And I remember laying in the tent and I'm like, what, what am I doing? You know, like my motto is like, you know, you know, make a decision. Absolutely. Know, make a decision, good, bad, or ugly. And that was the night that I decided I was going to move down to Connecticut. So it, it was kind of a personal you know, decision that I was going to give up everything that I had in my life and chase my future wife down to Connecticut. So I, at the time, I didn't think I was going to fly first. You know, I, I brought my gear down. I'm like, you know, there's no, no fly fishing in Connecticut. Yeah, I mean, moving towards New York, you're not thinking of uh, being outdoors, that's for sure. You know, and it was northern Connecticut, so it wasn't so bad. But I was like, all right, so I remember the first week I was there, she took me bluefish fishing um, in Long Island Sound on a big charter boat just to try to, you know, make amends. And she knew it was a big commitment that I did this. I was going to help her get She was selling you hard, buddy. She was really selling you. Yeah, she was, but at the same time, I also told her, I said, you know, uh, I'm committed to this, let's, you know, well, we can get into that later, but um, I remember I took her and her sister shopping, and we were in this town called Avon, and I immediately, you know, I'm like kind of bummed out, I'm like, going to go shopping with the ladies, and I see an Orvis store, and I'm like, oh, you, you don't put an Orvis store in a, a place that has no good fishing. I remember good I walked point. in there, and that was when I... I was introduced to the Farmington River. Mm. And any of you fly fishermen out there, the Farmington River is a phenomenal fishery. It's a, it's a bottom-release dam. The, the water stays about 55 degrees year-round. Big fish, small insects. And that was really where I just kind of fine-tuned fly fishing. Yeah. That was the first time I, I bought like a three-weight fly rod. I was first time I've ever used 7X tippet and will will be the last time I use 7X tippet. Yeah, you you don't need that here in Maine, that's for sure. No, no, and if you do, you just you just trying to show off at that point. <laughs> um, you know, so again, you know, it was that was a good good introduction because you could see something else other than Maine and fly fishing in that. I mean, it, just to give you an idea of how cold that water was, I remember there was a day it was like 98 degrees, and I'm like, you know, what? I'm not going to wear my waders. I left him in my truck and I went waiting. And I remember like 10 minutes later, I, like my legs are red. I can't feel my toes. Wow. And I'm like, okay, it's the middle of the summer and it was beautiful water. Um, but again, it was like some of the same techniques that I used back in Maine worked on the Farmington. So there's a lot of, a lot of translation there, but I still stuck to my guns and used a lot of streamers. There was a lot of weird looks because at the time I had a five weight, and people are like, oh, you're overmassing these fish. I'm like, there's like 22-inch browns right there. I mean, what are you doing? I mean, these guys were using one weights, two weights, 22-foot oh. leaders. And there was a contest. It was like the old man group. They would just find the, the smallest fly that they could catch a 20-plus-inch trout on. And these guys were successful almost every morning. This is insane. <laughs> <laughs> I've... Uh... Is, is the Farmington mostly stocked fish, or do they hold over there? I mean, imagine with those temperatures, they must, right? So it is stocked every year, but they have a program. And honestly, I was only there for a year and a half, so I don't know the, all the nuts and bolts of what they do. Uh, but I follow, you know, some of the, the shops that are on the river, and um, they, they do have a good holdover success. So honestly, it's 
it's it, it's a really nice fishery. So if you have a chance to go down to Connecticut, I know everyone will probably go to the Housatonic. Um, the Farmington River is just lights out one of my favorite fisheries outside of Maine. Well, if I ever go, I'll have you. I'll have you go and show me. How about that? <laughs> yeah, no, no worries, no worries. All right, so fast forward a little bit. How did you? Uh, how did you get back to Maine? Well, I mean, after you know, my wife because during that intern, we got married when we were down in Connecticut. Nice. Um, and she got an internship at Bowdoin College in Brunswick. So working in the athletics department there. So we moved to Harpswell. And, you know, that kind of put me in the southern Maine area. Um, because, again, there really wasn't much up where we grew up. You know, like I said, Beth, she grew up in East Millinocket. I grew up in Sebec. There really wasn't a lot of job opportunities for people up there. No. And so Harpswell was nice because, you know, again, that's when I started really fishing the Androscoggin River. So I was fishing mostly up in Gilead and Bethel and that, those other areas. But again, I was exploring Lisbon, you know, bass fishing. Yep. Um, and again, you know, at the time, we were only there maybe a year. And then we moved down to the Portland area. And that kind of just put us right in the Sebago region. Um, and that's, you know, we've owned our home 11 years now. And, um, you know, been down southern Maine probably over 15 years now, I think. Yeah, it's interesting because when I, you know, when I think of you, I think of I think of Sebago Lake because it seems to be your, it's like where you really put in a lot of time there, right? And like, I mean, if if somebody said to me, "Hey, I wanna I wanna go fish Sebago Lake," like I'm like, all right, well, call John Peterson, you know, like he's gonna be your guy. So yeah, we we've you know, it's it's funny we I have put a lot of time in Sebago and a lot of the rivers and streams around there. Um, you know, and one of my really good friends, you know, um, <laughs> oh my God, I did a, did a little like brain fart here. Uh, Dan Hillier, uh, Songo River Guide Service. Um, we met on the river. He was trolling down the river and I was fishing off the beach and, you know, ended up fishing in his boat, which my wife still gives me a hard time about. You know, you just jumped into a stranger's boat. I said, well, he had a guide sticker on the boat. So he obviously he's a trustworthy guy. There you go. <laughs> um, and it's funny because while we were fishing, I said, what was your last name again? He said, Hillier. And I said, do you know a John Hillier? And he yeah. I go, well, I went, he goes, that's my brother. And I said, well, I went to college with him. So it was a very small world that we, we you know, kind of small bubble that we were in. And we spent a ton of time on Sebago. Dan spent more time than me on Sebago, but we've put in a lot of time there. And we're always talking, you know. Again, I have, you know, a lot of people that we talk every day about what's going on in the fishery. You know, if, if I'm not out that day, he's out there or I'm out there. And we, we just really logged a lot of time. And, you know, again, it, if, if, if you're not having success, I mean, what are you doing wrong? And so we're, we're constantly comparing those. We're always exploring and, you know, just pushing the envelope with the fisheries that we're doing there. Sure. And, you know, Sebago is, uh, I mean, it's, it's a beast, man. And obviously, you know that. And I, uh, I have very few Sebago stories. I mean, my my family grew up with a camp on uh, on Fry Island, so I have just experienced like hanging out on the beaches. But in terms of fishing, I I went out there a few times, like high school, college, with some friends in April. And man, yeah. I mean, it is brutal out there. You know, it's cold, it's choppy. Um, I'm asking my buddy, hey, where do I, you know, where do I take a leak? You know, he's like, off the side of the boat, just don't fall in. I'm like, oh my god. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. oh, is that why every time I ask you to come out of the lake, well, you're like, yeah, I'm not doing that. Absolutely not. I have I have PTSD about it. So, 
It's not even yeah, funny. Yeah. <laughs> but I'll be honest with you. We, we've been really putting in some time in the, the shoulder seasons, um, April and in October, November, um, Lakers on the fly. That's, that's the new, new thing that, uh, you know, we've been putting together. And that's, I think that's a program that people are going to be able to kind of buy into. Um, something different, something, you know, that will, will give you a, a fight, not just you're not, you're not trolling, you're, you're casting your fly. Yeah, so, um, so I mean. That we've been working on. You guys have really, uh, I've seen this spring, like you've put some sweet lake trout in the, in the net on the fly, you know, and um, even with all the weird stuff going on and the social distancing and all that stuff, I mean, you guys have been getting out there and getting after it. And um, just, just so we don't jump away from your timeline. So you moved down to Portland and how old were you at that point? Oh gosh. Um, So I'm, I'm 38 now. So, you know, 26, 27. Okay. Yeah. I don't Maybe yeah, my timelines are a little blurry right now. So, so did you have a did you have a boat when you moved to Portland, or how did how did that all start for you? So I did not have a boat. I had a canoe um, that traveled with me from, you know, actually stayed in Quebec, but I ended up bringing it back with me after I moved back from Connecticut. Um, and you know, it was mostly you know fishing in other people's boats or weed fishing, fishing from shore. Um, the real breakthrough for me, obviously we'll talk about the guiding service, but it was when I, I bought my uncle's 14 foot Crestliner Sportsman. And that allowed me to, to really put, put more distance on the water and open up a whole nother avenue for me. Sure. But before that, before that I had a little John boat that I'd explore small ponds with, um, you know, that 14 footer really was the start of really breaking out and kind of, you know, giving my clients a different option and, um, yeah, we well, we can talk about the new boat a little bit later, but um, you know, having that fourteen footer, you know, there are, are limitations in that. Kind of, I think it gives you a little bit of a um, perspective because you have to be careful. Um, you can't go out on Sebago on certain days in any boat, but there's certain times you shouldn't go out with a fourteen. So yeah, and I mean that's you know, that's you, a pretty you, traditional. That's a traditional main boat, like right, like a fourteen foot Lund or just a fourteen foot yeah. V hull with a what, like a twenty five horse or something like that on it. Yeah, I had a twenty five uh, horse Suzuki, um, and I, I, I run deep V hulls, you know, because they cut the water and they're a little bit more stable, and um, you know we're more used to the big water. Um, so a deep V in Maine is is more the most more traditional hull sure. that you're going to find. Yeah. That's awesome, man. So, so, um, all right. So let's let's fast forward a little bit here. So you're like late twenties, right? And you're spending your time out on Sebago and surrounding yeah. rivers and stuff like that. Is that correct? Oh yeah, yeah. I was definitely putting a lot of time and um, every 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 chance I had, I was I was out fishing, putting, nice. putting time on the water. Yeah, and I mean, let's be honest. I mean, here in Southern Maine, there's a uh, there's a decent amount of water, but at the same time, it's it can get busy. I mean, there's a lot of people. You're close to Portland, right? Like those are absolutely, and and, and that's also why we're we've been you know exploring different bodies of water. Like yesterday, we were on a different body of water for bass and brown trout. Um, we're just trying to branch out a little bit because I do feel like some of the other places get a little tired and a little old, and you know, you, you know, it's hard to always rely on Tobago because there's days you show up there and that wind is not going to let you launch. Like you can stay in the river, but if that's a 
southerly winds over 10 mile an hour, or even if it's eight, nine, you're not going to get on Vega Lake. So having different options you know, is, is the most important thing for us. And that's why we've been branching out lately. Yeah, and that's a huge thing for a guide. I mean, not having a plan, not only just having a plan B, but a plan C and a plan D, right? <laughs> just in case. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that was uh, very evident back in October. And, and, you know, I think you and I talked about that, whereas that mutual client of ours said, uh, you know, we were supposed to do two days drifting on the Andro up in Gilead and Bethel, and the river got blown out the night before, and the fishing was horrible this, that first day. Yep. And I said, I told him, I said, I'm going home. Here's where I want you to meet me tomorrow morning. And I brought the big boat and we went to a different spot. And within five minutes, beautiful 22 inch rainbow on the fly. It's awesome. You know, ha- having, having that extra plan and being able to just say, you know what? Definition of insanity is doing this again. So we're going to do something different and really selling, selling the client on different options. Um, like you said, you got, you got to have that, that, that repertoire. That for sure, be able to allow you to be be a successful guide. So, so how old were you when you got your guide license? You remember? Uh, it was back in two thousand fourteen. Okay, um, so you so you were the. It's funny you were the same year as me. And for people who you know are listening and stuff, I mean, John, uh, you and I met that first year we were kind of guiding, right? Yeah, I was with Chi on the Presumpscot River. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and you and I just met and we kind of got talking saying, Hey, you know, we're both kind of new to the game and, uh, we had a nice yep. conversation. Right. And then we were just kind of like, you know, Hey, if you ever, uh, you know, if you ever can't handle some business, you know, uh, feel free to throw it my way. And it was, it was a mutual thing and we've been hanging yep. ever since. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, honestly, it starts with a conversation. Um, and you kind of get to know people, um, you know, just the other day, you know, I went out with, uh, Brian Rosa. He's a new guy. Um, got to know the guy. Um, and again, it starts with a conversation. And, and networking is the most important thing in, in our business. And, you know, if you if you don't have that personality that can network and talk to people, then it might not be the right business for you. Um, but again, I, I remember that first time, like, you know, you were fishing a new spot that I never fished. And I'm like, oh, we're going up to this spot. And, you know, we're chatting and talking about life. And, you know, I was like, all right, you know, he's a, he's a cool guy. You know what? I'll definitely, you know, be able to you know, <laughs> chat with him again. And you know, again, it's like you know, sometimes when you meet people on the water, it's very defensive. People are like, "Oh, what are you doing? Like, are you trying to encroach on my spot?" And oh, it can be very know, defensive. Think, we know that very defensive, and and that's why I, I don't guide on Presumpt Scott much anymore because, again, it's it's some, sometimes combat fishing, and it is frustrating, um, especially on the weekends. So you know, having that type of personality, but hey, what's going on? How you doing? You know seeing anything and you're sharing something and you know you don't get something for nothing that's the other thing no that's no. that's true that's very true and um you know it's funny you and i kind of started off at the same at the same time and similar places in life i'm a little younger than you but i have a lot less hair than you so um well, I, I tell you lately i feel like it should just all go right now so hey it's easy man i i've heard uh clippers are hard to buy right now because of this whole thing going on well, so, so, so Supposedly, ours is supposed to show up soon. I ordered, we ordered some clippers a couple of weeks ago from Amazon. So oh. initially, it was supposed to be June, but I think it all got bumped up. It's supposed to be next week. So maybe I'll be sporting a new do in, uh, <laughs> in a couple of weeks. Hey, you should just ask your bald friends, man. I mean, I got three pair of clippers here. You know, we don't we don't mess around. So I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, I'm, I'm, 
I do my own thing, that's for sure. All right, so listen, let's uh, let's transition to talking about guiding a little bit. And um, so, what what made you want to become a main guide? You know, it, it was always in the back of my head because um, my dad always talked about it. We we our family owned a lodge on Sebec Lake. It was Peterson's Lodge, um, and it was you know back in the forties and fifties. And I might even get that timeline wrong. I don't know. Um, but it was, it was a traditional sporting camp with a main lodge and outbuildings where people could stay. And, you know, dad always talked about it, you know, always talked about it. My uncle Bob, he was a, um, he was a guide as well, uh, but he moved to New Hampshire for a while. And, um, you know, so it was always in the back of my head and, and I know it, this might sound cliche, but after a while you start to, you know, feel like you're taking your friends out and you feel like you're guiding your friends because you like teaching. Um, and I, I hate to use that type of, you know, terminology like, oh, I was, I might as well get paid doing what I love. It's like, yeah, but you got to practice, you got to practice on somebody, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, again, when I, when I first got my guide license, you know, I took out acquaintances, people that, you know, you know, I may not know very well, maybe mutual friends of my wife or somebody else who, you know, I chatted with before I invited them on a trip and said, Hey, you know what? This one's on me. Come on out. Give me some feedback. See, see how the experience was. For sure. And that's how I did the, the start of it. I, you know, did a lot of, you know, freebies that first year just to kind of make sure that it was right. But ultimately it was just something that was always in the back of my head. And I like the lifestyle. I like, I like guiding and I like being outside and I like meeting new people. And, you know, there's nothing better than meeting somebody for the first time and having them have success and achieve the goal that they were looking forward to. Um, but yeah, it was just, it just felt a little bit more natural to become a guide. Yeah. And one thing, one thing that I love about you, John, like this last six years, you know, since you've been guiding, I've been getting to know you better and I've guided with you. I've seen you guide, you know, and, um, you kind of have that traditional main guide in you where you, where you like make it about the experience of the day. Um, you, put together like a really awesome like lunch for people like you know me personally i'm like do you want peanut butter and fluff or do you want peanut butter and jelly right <laughs> yeah no, I, remember, I remember those conversations and it was it was always my intention from the start to put together an experience but the food was always a thing and you can ask my wife it was one of the first things i talked about i'm like what is it that i want to do and it's like i don't want to just be about you know, fishing because i mean you know, the best advice that I was ever given, it was a third party piece of advice. So I don't even know who it came from. They said, you can't, you, you can't, ex- you can't control the fishing, but you sure as hell can control the experience. Absolutely. So, you know, again, we've all had those moments where the river was fishing great the day before and something happened. Uh, last October, I was on the East outlet, lower East outlet. They were playing with the, the gates and all of a sudden, the breeze started coming down the river. Wasn't scheduled, wasn't noticed, wasn't something that anybody know, talked about. It could have ruined the day. But, you know, again, experience. What is it that you were offering? I think we did bacon cheeseburgers that day. That's awesome, man. I mean, it's, you know, it's, you, uh, you know, for, for people who don't know, I mean, the traditional main guide, right, would do fishing trips and uh, especially like down east, right? Like they'd go out and they'd get, you know, they'd have a they'd have a kind of a campsite or a cooking area set up and they'd, you know, yep. cook up the fish you caught in the morning with potatoes and stuff like that for lunch. And, um, you know, one thing I know about you is that 
you know, you take people fishing, you take them fishing for, you know, eight or nine hours or whatever. But I mean, man, you're, you're out there three hours before the trip starts and you're setting up, uh, you know, you're setting up a little cook station somewhere, um, in some spot that people can't, you know, people don't know about. And, and, uh, and then you're breaking down after, I mean, it's not an eight or nine hour day for you. It's a 14, 15 hour day at the end of the day, right? Absolutely. It's, uh, you know, meet the clients at seven, you know, I've launched at five. Yep. Um, you know, I've, I got up at three or three thirty, and again, you know, the end of the day, I always say people get eight hours of fishing, one hour for lunch. Um, regardless of what you want to do, I mean, if you want sandwiches, I'll advise against it, but, um, <laughs> you know, again, um, you know, after we're done, so like I say, seven to four, you know, drop them off, they're happy, you know, if it goes over a little bit, that's fine. I'm home eight o'clock that night, breaking down stuff, cleaning up, but you know, it's that, that at the end of those days, I feel great, you know, yeah, I'm a little tired, trust me, I'm a little cooked, but it, it, it's definitely worth it, so I've learned a little bit of, you know, shorting up that, that time frame a little bit, but I still, it's, it's all about the commitment to the experience to people. Yeah, and I mean, one thing I realized about you that is, um, you know, it's something that as guides, we all got to have this, right? Like, we got to understand who are the people we're taking out today, what's their experience level, what do they, you know, what do they want out of the day, and you're very good at recognizing, you know, what, what people's um, desires are, and then also, like, being realistic in what their their capabilities are. Um, you know, that's a huge thing for a guide, right, at the end of the day, being able to, to decipher that stuff. Absolutely, and, and you know the funny story, and I, I think I've shared this with you before. It was actually my first true guided trip, and it actually came from you. I remember that because you you were booked up around it was around Fourth of July, yeah. And this client wanted a bass trip. He didn't care where or whatever, but he wanted twelve to four. I'm like, nah, not a really good time. Um, and I was fishing on my square stern canoe at the time, and I I didn't vet him correctly. Uh, it was all my fault, you know, in regards to his expectations and what he was looking for. And we get into the boat, and he says something to the effect of, you know, my best guided day was 22 fish in Florida. I want you to beat that. And I just looked at him. I'm like, well, I took you to the wrong spot then. Right. It was a half-day It was a half day trip. And, right. You know, I went, I went with size and not quantity. Yep. So I was like, ugh. You know, and, and it, it, was, it was a tough, tough trip. And... I remember I seriously doubted what I was doing after that trip. That was that was a defining moment for me where I was like, you know what, I, this is this is a little tough. This is a little tough. And uh, you know, I really did some soul searching after that, and I realized I made the mistake of not asking the right question. So that's something that I've been very cognizant of um, ever since then is making sure that you ask the right questions. And then you know, I've I've turned trips away because the the expectation didn't match the reality sure or i gave them some or i gave them somebody else who would probably do a much better you know trip for them in a different spot right you know i'm not i'm not gonna sell myself on something that i can't do yeah yeah and that's part of reality i mean you know i i had a guide um up in the rangeley region told me early on my first year he said to me he said you know he said, um, don't just take anybody out, you know, he said, vet them and see what they're all about. And, you know, um, make sure they're going to be respectful of the places that you go and make sure they have 
realistic expectations. And, you know, when you're starting out those first couple of years, you're like, okay, yeah, like I just want to get trips. I want to get some experience under my, under my belt. But Absolutely. Now, now that I'm several years in the game, you know, I'm kind of like, I'm vetting people a little more, you know, and I don't mean that in a, I don't mean that in like a nose in the air type of way, but I mean, you know, if your goal is to catch a, uh, you know, two foot brook trout and you've only been fly fishing for a couple of years, like, Maybe that's not a great fit or something, you know. I mean, I don't know. It's 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 hard sometimes. I mean, I, I know you're paying. You know, people are paying us for business, but I mean, we get to spend the day with you too, right? So, oh, it's it's if fishing's tough. I mean, you know, you don't let it show to the clients, but internally, I'm dying. Oh, me too, I'm, man. I'm trying to I'm trying to figure it out. I'm like, okay, this this should work. This should work. Oh, okay, that's not working. So you you try to figure out what it is that either they're doing wrong or you're doing wrong or maybe it's just the fish um yeah that's uh, that's been the biggest challenge is like i said getting the right right people in the right places yeah and i and i think uh, you know one thing that's made you really successful not not that i want to give away your secrets or any, secrets or anything like that but like you know a lot of guides in in uh in maine or just across the country you know they they have like a specific body of water that they do or a couple and uh yep. You know, one of the things that makes you really versatile is that you have, like, you do a ton of different stuff. So, do you want to talk about a little bit, you know, you have to give away, you know, names of ponds or rivers that you do or anything. But, like, you know, how do you diversify yourself? Because you're you're a really diverse guide compared to most from what I've seen. So, Well, I mean, obviously, I, I go with what I know um, growing up. Um, you know, I still guide in the Katahdin area, the Moosehead region, because um, that's where I grew up. You know, those are the bodies of water that I, I know. And like I said, I, I don't really, I don't guide on places that I haven't fished at least 10 times. Um, and even then, I'm a little nervous about doing that. Um, but again, you know, those are the spots that I know. And, and again, I, I keep trying to say, it's like, you got to know the rhythm of the fish, too, and, and the time of the year. So I'm not going to go up to a certain body of water in early April and expect to be successful compared to going in the end of May. Um, but, you know, same thing with with um, the Sebago region. Um, but last year I, I added saltwater. So, you know, I, I guide stripers on the fly. Um, yeah, you know, again, I, I, I try to just go to the places that I know. And obviously I live here now. So, you know, fishing in the Sebago region, the Casco Bay area, um, it was kind of a natural thing. But like I said, I, I, I try to diversify just with the spots that I know and, you know, keep pushing the envelope. Yeah, and I mean, and you're you're you know you're a guy who I consider you know you're a you're a jack of all trades. I mean, you'll take you'll take little kids, you'll take older folks, you'll take people you know on the salt, you'll take people for a smallmouth pike, you'll take people for trout and salmon. Um, yep. you, you do ice fishing trips, right? Like, and you know you do a bunch oh. of things. <laughs> so I, ice fishing trips, um, the dirty little secret on that one. Those are a lot harder and there's more gear um those are more physically exhausting and emotionally exhausting trips but they're fun but again you know there's a lot going on underneath the water but the one thing that we we started doing this year and and you can check out the videos on our facebook page um we did sight holes um and one of the most memorable trips this year was we were jigging um you know, the, the little, our client, he's, I think he's probably 10, um, him and his father, you know, we were in tents and we had a sight hole and you could see the trout grabbing the jigs and we were videotaping it. And it was just like, that was a whole new dimension for us was 
finding that opportunity in the right place to sight fish, you know, through the ice. Which Absolutely. Is, again, a lot, there's, a, there's a lot of videos out west. And there's some guys doing it out in Maine as well. Um, so I'm definitely not the first one to do it. So anybody that says, oh, you know, John's claiming to be the first one to do it. No, <laughs> not really. We didn't uh, hear that. We didn't hear that. Yeah, I, 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 I'm the inventor of sight fishing through ice holes. Just let you know. Um, Love it. But you know that, that those are those are some of the experiences that you know this kid. I don't think he's going to forget because um, I, I sure won't forget. It was a phenomenal day of fishing night that day. Yeah, and I got to be honest. Like the thing I love about. Um you know, just our chance encounter six years ago, meeting each other and then keeping in close contact since then. I love that you're so, you're so diverse, you know, like your guiding season never really basically stops for you. I mean, you're a, you're a, you're a year round guide in Maine, which a lot of people are, are not able to do that. You know, most people are Memorial Day through like September, maybe October. But Yeah, it does take a toll a little bit. Um, there's some time frames that are a little, sketchy and it really gets sketchy in, in November. Um, I did, I had two trips last November and one was a trout trip went perfectly. And then the next week we went to the Androscog in the, you know, in a certain spot that the coves were iced in and it was very tough on my boat. It was tough on me. It was like 20 degrees out. And that was when I decided to hang it up for the, for that, the open water season. Um, so we had somewhat of a lag, but I, my first ice fishing trip this year was December 23rd. So there wasn't a huge gap there. So right. I could have been could have been guiding, you know, on Tobago for spawning lake trout in November. Um, the problem with that is getting out on the water um, in a boat in November on Tobago is a little tough. You have to take the, the conditions into account. Um, and you know, again, you can wade fish. But again, personally, you can wade fish. But you know, bringing a client out wade fishing in November is a whole another ball game. Um, and then March is actually a decent month where that transition from ice fishing to open water. Um, we were on Sebago March 25th this year. It's amazing. On earlier. So, and the only problem with that is you can't fish some of the spots that we like to fish until April 1st, but obviously this year they opened the season up early. Yeah. Um, so we had the opportunity to fish some of those spots. So that one's a little bit tricky. Um, you know, we caught we caught some fish out in the middle of the lake trolling, um, but we also went into the river and fished in March 25th and caught some nice fish. I didn't post that, but she she caught a 22 and a half inch salmon, you know, in the river, and it was like, okay, this this kid does this to me every year. He catches the biggest salmon, <laughs> you know, on the lightest tackle you can find, um, and that's just how he does it. So that's awesome. Um, so. Just to transition a little bit, so I mean, we know, so we we've talked about you do ice fishing stuff, you do, uh, you know, you're really well known for your stuff on Sebago early season, midsummer. You're still in Sebago, right? Like doing doing trips out there. Yeah, I mean, again, it's not a fly fishing type of trip in the middle of summer because you're chasing lake trout. You can chase smallmouth bass, but. You know, it is tough on a fly. I mean, we haven't really dialed it in so, so much right now. Um, but you, you, you will be trolling if you want lake trout. Um, they're just not presenting themselves in a place that you can get a fly to them. Um, but you do have more opportunities for smallmouth. And, and, and as much as people hate it, um, you can chase pike on Tobago. Um, you know, comments aside, I mean, if you want to kill them, you can on Tobago. But, you know... 
as a guide mentality, you know, you catch a 30 plus inch pike on the fly, you want your client to do it the next day. So absolutely, I guess, I guess we can open up a whole nother discussion on pike on Sebago. So I guess enter your comments here, um, how you feel about it. Um, but again, you know, there's been a lot of information that pike have been in Sebago since the eighties, but you know, I'm not gonna, not gonna put my rubber stamp on that type of, you know, conversation, but, yeah. um, you know, again, you know, I would probably talk to somebody, if somebody really wanted, you know, to chase fish on the fly in the middle of summer on Sebago, I'd say, let's go to the, some of the neighboring ponds. Um, cause you always have to have that backup, you know, the small ponds around, around the Sebago region are phenomenal for, for large mouth and small mouth. So just have to have that in your back pocket. Yeah. And I mean, you do, a, you do a lot of stuff on, um, you know, some of the, some of the ponds, the, the bigger rivers, even the little rivers and stuff. But, um, you know, last year you got a new boat, correct? And you love, you love being in that thing. Talk about your boat a little bit. So the backstory on that was, um, you know, I already owned a Crestliner. So I loved the construction of the hull. I loved everything about just what it is. It's American made. Um, and again, I remember boat shows. It was, you know, much to the chagrin of my wife, I, you know, I started going to boat shows. And, you know, I I went to the Portland boat show and, you know, I was looking at getting a pro staff deal because, again, you know, never heard staff. And I was like, uh, the first, first booth that I went to was Clark Marine. And Clark Marine's out of Manchester, Maine, right outside of Augusta. And I remember I talked to Duddy. And I had a very specific boat in mind. I was looking for an 18-foot boat with a tiller because I wanted to have all my clients in front of me. And he said, well, this is the one, you know, he showed me the Kodiak. I'm like, all right, that's perfect. You know, and I said, well, what do you do? Pro staff deals. He's like, well, you got to talk to Rob Brown, the owner. I said, okay. So I gave him my card and we started the conversation and it, it evolved very quickly that, you know, as a guide and somebody that's interested in Crestliner, um, it, it, it was easy for us to kind of have that conversation and, and talking to Rob, I mean, he's a phenomenal guy. He's the owner of, of Clark Marine and I got the pro staff um, deal and I am a Crestliner pro staff sponsored by Clark Marine and I picked up a 18 foot Kodiak Crestliner with a 60 horsepower killer Merck with a Minn Kota Tarova 80 pound thrust trolling motor on the front. It was a total game changer for me. Yeah. Um, you know, when you really put the time into get a boat like this, the dividends were immediate, you know, taking clients up to the West branch of the Penobscot, the lower West branch of the Penobscot. And there's a function on your trolling motor. You can spot lock. And I was in 4,600 CFS water. I wasn't using my big motor. I hit the spot lock on my trolling motor and we were holding perfectly within 15 feet of a seam where they were feeding salmon. Man, that's fantastic. and I tell you that that boat, you know, handles small water, big water. Um, and I will say it has totally changed the game for me in regards to how I guide. Um, and last September I had four adults and we weren't fly casting, but four adults, um, four coast guard adults, <laughs> mind you, they were a fun crew. That's awesome. Um, casting and nobody got tangled or whatever. It was a lot of space. Um, it was a game changer. So uh, yeah, like I said, an eighteen foot Kodiak Crestliner. It's it, like I said, it's 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 my baby. <laughs> yeah, and I uh, 
I I love the uh, the Minkota part, the whole spot lock thing. I mean, because being in a river, I mean, how big of a pain in the ass is it to be throwing an anchor out there and worrying about getting hung up in the anchor? I mean, you have no anchor. It's amazing, you know. No anchor, and I I can tell you the difference. I had the same clients a year apart. Um, I guided them this past October for two days, and then the year before I guided them for one day, and it was on the lower east outlet. The first year I I had to cut an anchor because it got lodged and I just couldn't get it out. So I had two more anchors in my boat, but it was such a pain. I'm like, I'm leaving an anchor in the river. I'm like, this isn't okay. And then the next year, last year, just spot lock in that river. We can move about. There was no issue. And it was like, okay, you know what? No anchors, no problem. And heavier the current, not too heavy, but, um, heavy current helps orient that boat because it, it points that bow into the, the force that it's coming from. So it'll point up river. Think so it doesn't sway, it doesn't sway left and right and go back and forth on you. It depends on where you are. Um, if you're in good current and there's no conflicting currents, you hit that spot lock, it will hold because it's got a, it, the, the current's pushing against it. Yeah. So it has something. So if it's, if it's really windy, you can do the same thing. It's going to point into the wind. Now, if you don't have a lot of wind, it'll get, I call it, it's confused. Um, you know, um, it, it'll just keep spinning because it's trying to hold it, but it doesn't know where to push the propeller. So you have to be careful on how you approach the spot lock. Uh, Dan and I made a mistake with his boat once. We were trolling and we got a strike and we're like, oh, let's try the spot lock out. Well, spun the whole boat around and we had four lines out. It was a complete mess. So we learned pretty quickly not to do that. Um, <laughs> So, you know, using that trolling motor, I mean, it's an 80-pound thrust, and if you're not careful and you're not paying attention to which way that the prop is pointed, you can pitch clients out of the boat very quickly. So I have a saying in my boat, I'm like, stable base. And if they're like, what? And I'm like, I tell them beforehand, I give them a safety proof. I said, if I say stable base, either sit down or make a you know, squat a little bit because I'll have to get out of some situation pretty quick. Um because I just don't want to pitch anybody out of my boat. That would just be awkward. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, you know, just, just to talk about your guide service a little bit, I mean, you're, you're, you're a utility guide. I mean, you do it all, right? Like you do four seasons, you do multiple species, you do multiple locations in Maine. And, um, you know, last year, just, just to speak about this for a minute, you added, you know, guiding in the salt a little bit. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Um, obviously, you know, I'll have to give you the backstory a little bit was, um, and we talked about connections, you know, who you meet, who you know. Um, it was a, it was a bar fly at, um, Ox, Oxbow Brewing in Portland. And, uh, it was right before Christmas, a couple, couple Christmases ago. And, uh, I met Kevin Stone, um, old oak outfitters. Um, you know, we were just standing there and I was like, Oh, you're Kevin. He's like, Oh, you're John. And we got to talking. And I tell you what, the first thing that guy asked me was like, have you ever thought about getting your six pack license? So I kind of laughed at him. I'm like, nah, no. I'm like, what is that? What, what, what are you, what are you talking about? And he said, Oh, it's, it's the guy on a boat in the ocean. And I was like, nah, I hadn't really thought of it. Thanks. You know, again, just realistically, I, that's kind of a surprising question. So I was like, nah, no, I'm good. And you know, he, he was very persistent and you know, he, he's good at selling things. Um, but what really came of that was, you know, we've become really good friends and, you know, when it comes down to that, you know, you trust the people around you, um, and you help me get my captain's license. And that was, that was a trip. That was a lot, that was a lot of fun. 
Um, I can only imagine. And uh, it, it was a lot of work, though. I mean, it was two nights a week, three hours a night for nine weeks. And, you know, at the end, you have to take a test, and then you have to send in all your your documentation of your seat time and all this other stuff. You have to get fingerprinted, background checked, just as much, you know, different than being a guide. You have to get fingerprinted and background checked there, too, but totally different. One's federal, one state. And then, you know, I added the, added the uh, solar guiding last October. So and that's a new new avenue for me. And that, that's, that was really exciting because the difference is, you know, it's you know, seven or eight miles to the slip in South Portland. And you have some of the hardest fighting fish coming up the coast. I mean, they're in Maine right now, so they're coming. Um, they're not totally up here. You know, again, you'll see pictures of people that, you know, caught some stripers and, um, those are the, the holdovers. Those are the ones that you Yeah, I heard about those. Stage. James Brown was telling me about those. They stay here all throughout the year. Yeah. They're not really well, migratory. Why not? Yeah. I mean, you, you're going to find the same thing with like shad too. Shad will stay in the rivers, and, you know, um, it just, it's just nat- natural, you know, with that many fish moving up, you're going to have some just say, yeah, it just, they aren't triggered the same way. They're just going to stay there because, you know, if they're going to chase all the bait back down, they stay and they got plenty of bait here. They yep. got plenty of forage. So, so yeah, so that, that was kind of a, you know, really interesting and, and exciting because again, it, it opened up a, a lot of, a lot of doors uh, to keep guiding and, you know, really kind of put your name out there and, um, and like I said, it, just working with Kevin has been a trip. I mean, you know, he's, he's a good friend and he's a great guy. You know, we've had, we had, we had the opportunity to guide um, ice fishing together, but we've never guided open water yet together. We fish a lot together. <laughs> so, but again, you know, again, when it, when it comes to the opportunity, it, it is a little awkward, you know, guiding together in certain circumstances, unless you have a big crowd. So if, you, if you're bringing like two or three people out, you don't need another guide. It's almost like an, the extra appendage. You're like, eh. I don't know what this guy's doing over the corner here, but, right. you know, but, you know, it's, it's, the possibilities are, are limitless, you know, and I, I think, you know, obviously, we're not, we're not going to come out and say it right now, but we got some really, you know, exciting things in the works, and, you know, I think, uh, you know, it's going to help us be better guides, and, and I think it's going to help a lot of, you know, drive people to our business, and we're excited, but, you know, obviously, all the details haven't been worked out yet. Yeah, I mean it's uh it's funny because I met I met Kevin this past winter through Barfly stuff. I hadn't met him before. The only place I knew him from was he was the uh, he was a Super Bowl commercial uh, main guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he hates he hates that. But that was one of the first things I said to him. I'm like, oh, you're the guy in the commercial. He's not hate that. I'm like, well, I'm sorry, but that's you know, you're the one that did the commercial. And it was a cool commercial. And anybody that wants to check it out, it's New Center, Maine. Um, you can just check out Kevin Stone commercial. Um, but yeah, it was it was fun because again, he's a good sport about it. I mean, it, it was a good commercial. Yeah, it's funny because I mean, uh, I told him this too. I said, you know, when I saw that, I was like, I, who is this guy? I don't remember this guy. You know, I figure if they're gonna put him. I mean, God out there, it's gonna be somebody who's been around for, you know, forty years or whatever. But it was, uh, it was pretty funny, and I had a good chat with him about it and stuff. And uh, he's gonna do a, he's gonna do a podcast coming up here soon for us, which I'm, I'm excited to hear about. So, um, yeah, uh, yeah, he's got a lot of guiding experience, so that was, you know, it'll be, it'll be some interesting stories, that's for sure. For sure. Um, all right, John. Well, listen. Let's take let's take a little commercial break here, and then uh, we're gonna come back and talk about a pretty hot topic, aren't we? Yes, we are. That's for sure. All right, that sounds good. So we'll take a short uh, commercial break here, and we'll be back with you. 
If you haven't listened to previous episodes of the podcast, the overall purpose is to promote fishing in Maine and promote folks who are doing some very cool things with fly fishing here in Maine. Uh, on the first few episodes, I had on Greg Labonte, Nate White, and Megan Hess, and they're all fly tying extraordinaires who can tie up custom and traditional patterns that are extremely durable. You can be sure that your flies will last and they're being tied right here in the state of Maine by very knowledgeable anglers and fly tires. I also interviewed Jeff Davis, owner of Maine Fly Company, who makes a wide array of small batch fly rods at his shop in North Yarmouth, Maine. Their rods range from two weights for, for small stream fishing all the way to fly rods that will help you master stripers on the Maine coast. And speaking of the Maine coast, uh, in episode six I featured James Brown, otherwise known as Maine Striper Guide and his season is currently in full swing. He's very knowledgeable about Maine striper population and habitat. James can get you out on the water and show you everything you need to up your striper game. Lastly, episode 7 featured John Blunt, the owner of Grant's Kennebago Camps in Rangeley, Maine. Grant's camps are set on remote Kennebago Lake, which holds some of the best landlocked salmon and brook trout fishing in Maine. Grant's is a great place for families and anglers of all skill levels. Uh, welcome back. I'm back with John Peterson of Peterson's Guide Service of Maine. Um, in the first segment, you got to hear a little bit about what he does, his background. Um, and as promised for the second segment here, we're going to talk about a somewhat controversial topic. And uh, we wanted to talk about uh, fly fishing and social media. So um, John and I are going to take you guys through some what we think are do's and don'ts of social media Um in terms of talking about fly fishing and uh you know these are things that we've that we've been thinking about for a while we've been probably having you know discussions around the campfire with people about this for a while and just kind of uh you know peeves of ours maybe but also like these are really shared mostly by other people who are really into fly fishing whether they're guides or fishermen or whatever so um hopefully uh you, you know, you may disagree with some of these and you might agree with all of them, but at the same time, it's, uh, we're just here to kind of educate a little bit and, and try to make it a positive experience for everybody. So, um, John, let's do this. Let's start off. Um, and we'll start with the do's of social media and fly fishing. So why don't you kick us off with one thing that, um, you think is like appropriate or people should be doing in terms of when, when they're posting about fly fishing on social media. Yeah, the, one, the first thing I always like to say is, you know, keep it positive. Um, you know, we all want to be able to share our experiences. But, you know, share the whole story and the experience, not, not just all the fish pictures. Just keep it positive, um, you know, because, again, you know, fly fishing is a lifelong endeavor and, and pursuit. So just keep your post positive and, and fun. I mean, if you lost a big fish, make fun of yourself. I mean, or share the heartache, you know. Just keep it positive when it comes to social media. Yeah, and I, I think... Uh you know, between the two biggest uh, social media platforms, Facebook and Instagram, I really like Instagram because it's just pictures usually, or you share a short story, and Facebook seems to kind of be more, you know, people ranting or debating, and... Uh, um, Absolutely. I, I got to be 100% honest with you, too. Two weeks ago on my phone, I actually deleted the Facebook app um, because just with everything going on in the world right now, I just feel like with all the news and all the stuff, it was just... It was just stuff I didn't want to just be sitting and like reading it all day. And I, I, I'll be 100% honest with you. Like I have a problem with social media sometimes. I just check it a lot or I'm like always into it. And um, 
you know, I really wanted to kind of step away and it's been great. And, uh, just, just keeping Instagram on my phone has been pretty cool. Cause like you said, it's, it's pretty positive. You know, people are just posting them one or two fish pictures here and a short blurb and that's it, you know? And, um, Absolutely. uh, yeah. And it, you know, and again, just in general talking about social media, I was talking to a client about this this past weekend. I think it's a really hard time for people to be getting into fly fishing, especially if you follow on social media, because, you see a lot of these really great fish pictures, right? And like these big fish. And let's be honest, man, people aren't, you know, you're not catching a 20 inch brook trout, you know, every hour of the day. Like what people are not sharing is that, you know, they just fish three days in a row, 14 hour days. And they, they caught that fish. You know what I mean? So, um, social media can probably be a little discouraging. So if you're new to fly fishing, don't, don't get stuck on looking at fly fishing pictures all the time and think it's all great because we all have tough days and it, and it happens, you know, no matter what. So. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. I've reminded clients that too. I mean, you could go through days and days and days and that one fish, and I always tell my clients, all it takes is one fish to change your mood and change the experience, but don't look at all those posts because you look at somebody's feed, all big fish, all big fish, all big fish, and that's very that's very true. I mean, it's very discouraging for new anglers yeah. getting into the sport. Absolutely. It's absolutely discouraging. I mean, and, and here's the thing is you really can't – people sometimes, they post small fish. They're like, you know, small fish need love too or people talk about skunk days and stuff like that. And, and that's cool. But, I mean, most of the time on social media, we share things that we're proud of, you know. And when you have a rough day in the water, it's usually one that doesn't make it on the old Instagram feed. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of how that goes you know so um just to share real quick a uh a do that i think is great is people asking questions about conditions so you know if you want to know if the ice is out on your favorite lake up north or whatever i mean i think i think that stuff is fair and really great for people to share um you and i talked about this earlier i think i think safe wading flows is is really cool too because you know a lot of people go hey, what's a really, you know, what's a safe flow to be waiting on the east outlet with? And, I mean, let's be honest, man. People don't want to drive up far for a trip and get up there and have it be blown out or too low. You know, they want to they want to make Absolutely. sure they're doing that. And that, that information, it's funny enough, is not really readily available on the Internet. You know, it's, 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 that's a nice thing about some of these online fly fishing, you know, communities. People share, you know, wading flows and stuff like that because – you don't get that stuff from the you know Brookfield and Safe Waters app and all that stuff. They don't tell you what's a safe flow. So um. no, and, you know I, I saw that a lot every spring. You know, when's the ice out or the smelt's running? Yeah, um, you're not really getting a lot of people asking for very specifics. And of course, we're going to talk about that later. But you know, those are 100. percent I feel like safe safe questions to ask. Or if you're not sure, like you said, private message the person. Yeah, if they're posting something, private message them. Don't. You know, it's kind of like people talk about Zoom meetings. You know, if that's a simple question to ask afterwards, don't 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 hold up the Zoom meeting late. You know, the whole time. So, yeah, don't get me started on Zoom meetings at this point. I'm so glad the school year is done. It's been a lot of Zoom meetings. So, um, Zoom is Zoom. <laughs> um, all right, how about you go with another one? So, what's another do of social media things that people people can do without so, getting too much flack? Well, not too much flack. Um, they use portrait mode on your phone um, when it comes to posting pictures of your fish. If you're proud of your fish, you, you can find a way to post it without too much editing. Um, but if, you, if you're concerned about, you know, spot burning or what have you, you know, you can find a way to post that, uh, post the picture of your fish and be proud of it. 
but you know, if you can't, I mean, you got to make a decision and be, you know, stand by it and be proud of it. I mean, it's your fish. You caught it. Um, I think you and I have had that conversation before. Well, you know, you like to see the pictures of the fish, but I like to see the whole experience. So, um, I said, just, you know, go with it and don't, don't, don't apologize for being proud of your catch. And, you know, even if you do harvest the fish, which we're going to go into the don't afterwards, but, you know, if you harvest the fish, own it, be proud. As long as it's legal, you, you should be fine. Yeah, that's funny you say that because there was a uh, there was a post I saw a couple weeks ago, or maybe even a week ago. But there was a there was a guy somewhere in Maine. He caught a huge rainbow. And, yeah, I know like, where it is. Huge. So yeah, we won't we won't we won't get into that. Obviously, we don't want to be part of that part of that. That's kind of more on the don't side. But uh, you know, at the end of the day, people were giving him a hard time. I think a little bit saying like, you know, why did you keep the fish? Why wouldn't you let something like that back? And I mean, I thought he was. I thought he was really justified in just saying, you know, hey, listen, I fought this fish for like 45 minutes. like, And the thing was toast by the time I got it in. So um, I felt like he explained that enough. And, I mean, on, let's be honest. If you catch a fish, any fish really, do you want to send it back floating? I mean, no. You may as well keep it at that point. And that's that's fishing, right? Like we're still driving a hook through a fish's mouth. Like it's not an enjoyable experience for them. And sometimes that stuff happens. And when it does, like – it's better to keep a fish, I think, than just float it back down river. So, yeah, and and again, you know, I'm I'm not a primary, I'm not a hundred percent catch and release because there's certain parts of the waters that I fish up north that are they want you to take more fish, so we do selective harvest. So I'm 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 not on the fence on that. If, if you feel like that fish is going to die and it's not worth it to send it back, then you should keep it and you know own it. And, or, or if you don't want the flag, just don't post it. Right. That's, that's another but great, that, 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 that's was a, a, that was a really nice fish though. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's a fish of a lifetime. I mean, really, I mean, that's, that's a fish where you could fish for that fish for 60 years and never get it, you know? So that was whoever that person is. I don't know who he is, but, but, uh, if you're listening to this, good for you. That's awesome. And, uh, nice, Absolutely. nice job. And it's cool. For me, it's cool just to know that that fish even exists. You know what I mean? That it's a fish that big is out there. So, um, absolutely. Uh, another do for me is um, I I like I personally like when people ask about gear, uh, different fly fishing gear. Like, absolutely share share your reviews, whether good or bad, and feel free to ask about gear stuff. I mean, um, we all have different um experience with with gear sometimes but i mean i can tell you right now i i love sharing gear reviews because i mean i want people to go out and have the best experience possible you know i don't no one wants to sit here and give you a gear review and then you go and have a bad bad time with it but um great question to ask if you want to know about waders you want to know about you know chest packs or sling packs or whatever it's like those are those are great things to ask on social media and you're often going to get a lot of feedback too which is great so Okay. How about another do from you? I, I don't have any more do's. I have don'ts. <laughs> you have don'ts. Okay, I'll I'll give you I'll give one more. I had a couple more here, but I'll just share one more. So, um, okay. I like seeing online. I love when people post a question about a scenario. You know, hey, I was fishing until dark last night on this stream, and I switched flies. This is what I tried. This, 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 and this. Nothing was working. Anybody got any like, clues on, on what I was maybe doing wrong or what I could be using? Um, you know, anything that leads to learning is cool in my book. You know what I mean? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And again, you know, you got to wade through some of the uh, the jokers as well. You know, like I, I I've made a comment once about you know if that didn't work, then use the Dupont spinner and it's dynamite. So <laughs> my dad my dad would always say that. I mean, there, there was a bunch of old timers that got it. I yep. think most people just kind of glossed over it. They didn't really think anything of it. But um, I think humor. Yeah. You can you can make fun of certain scenarios as long as it's not crude or anything like that or condescending to anybody. I think you know be lighthearted about it. You know, social media is all about connections. Absolutely, I, I agree one hundred percent. And you know, for people listening, I'm sure there's more dues out there. Um, this is just kind of what we we came up with on kind of a short term here and. Uh, for those those you don't know, um, John and I started this podcast what about a month ago, buddy? Seemed like that. <laughs> yes, you know, guiding and everything life got in the way, so it's June. The second second part month away, so um, you just made it happen. Yeah, so. I'm I'm shocked that we're even doing this in June, just because June is just an, a crazy month for fishing for every species, you know. So. Absolutely. It's crazy, but all right, listen, let's move over to the dark side. Let's let's talk about the don'ts. Um, I'll let you kick that off. So obviously the biggest don't right now, and we've seen a higher preponderance of this, I think due to the fact that people have been home, they've been stuck inside. You're not seeing it as much right now, but people asking on forums, all right, where, where do I go to catch this fish? When do I go? Where do I stand? Pretty much asking for everything. Mm. And... In, in in of itself, it's social media is an open open platform, so you know you can't really get too mad at it. But people were getting upset when nobody would answer, or people would be like, "Hey, find out for yourself." Yep. Those are both valid answers to this person's question. So I'm like, just maybe don't not think before you get sent your post, and make sure that you don't just you know not do any of the legwork yourself because yeah. that's what it looks like. I, I think when people post that question, John, you'll say, hey, you know, I'm in Augusta. Anybody got a good spot for trout around here? You know, and, and I think at this point, I I don't know. I'm one of those guys where I don't really post on it. I, I almost want to kind of sit back and grab my popcorn and watch a show, you know. Um, Absolutely. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, a huge part of fishing in general, not just fly fishing, any type of fishing is – you know, when you go out and explore stuff and you figure it out on your own without having a lot of people telling you things, I mean, that let's be honest, that's the best part, you know, of, of fishing. Um, yeah. I can remember my early days, dude, going to places like Upper Dam, going to places like the Rapid River, and, like, I didn't know access and stuff, or I didn't know what was good spots to fish, and it, and it took me some time, but when I found that stuff on one of my own without, you know, going and asking on a forum or going online and finding that stuff out, like to me, that's super rewarding. You know what I mean? Like I figured it out and I didn't need a lot of help. And, and that's, that's the stuff that I like. And, um, you know, just to, just to speak about social media for a second too, there's been forums online that have been around for probably almost 20 years now. Right. Um, there's a couple here in Maine. There's, there's fly fish in Maine and there's Maine fly fish. And, um, I feel like those forums, they've kind of established this culture of like shutting people down when they ask that question or, or they almost like people almost know when they're on there not to even ask those questions. And I feel like social media and some of these fly fishing groups on Facebook and stuff like that, I feel like it's kind of more of like a like a wild west and there's not really any rules established or anything, you know, and it's uh, 
it's a little different. So for people, people listening to the podcast here, um, not really cool to go ask for fishing spots. I mean, go out, literally go out and explore. You're going to feel better. Um, and for those of you who are like answering those people back and, and giving out some information about spots, I mean, just think about the fact that, you know, 5,000 sets of eyes are going to see that, not just the one person you're responding to. So, um, I mean, I don't, you and I might disagree on this, Sean, but I mean, I'm fine with sharing fishing spots with a person, maybe through a private message or something, but I don't think it needs to go out there for everyone to see, you know? I honestly, I've had enough of those inquiries where I play very coy. Yeah. Um, and of course, I'm not just a trout and salmon fly fishing guy. I do a lot of bass fishing as well. And you have to know when your, your tournaments are for bass fishing tournaments in this, in this area down here in Southern Maine. Yep. Um, because you'll get people act, acting like they're clients of yours. So if anybody here is a professional bass fishing angler, um, don't waste the guy's time by making making it seem like you're a client and asking for secrets and stuff like that. Like, what, what should I bring? You know, my friend and I are coming down and we want to fish the Bago in, in September. You know, it kind of goes into the same realm there. So we, we know we know who you are. That's usually when we're very coy with you. So I don't I don't give personal stuff out on messages anymore. I, I don't. Um, I'm very I'm very close when it comes to that because I'm like it's my job to take you out fishing. It's yeah, not my job. Not not my job to give it out free. No, it's not. And I I think I think from um, from your perspective and mine, where you know, you know, we are main guides. We do this for part of our living. You know, and it's it's something where. Yeah, we're not. We don't want to give out information for free, and I mean, people who do give out information for free too. I mean, think about how rewarding you felt, you know, when you when you found out that spot or you found something, and you know, just to give it to somebody like it's nothing. I mean, kind of takes away sometimes from what you did, but people feel very um, comfortable sharing fishing spots that are in, in like popular spots and stuff, um, and sometimes not so popular spots and. I just I don't understand that side of it. I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of it, and I'm not trying to be a jerk and say go figure it out. You know, I'm I'm more of like a like literally like go just go try some stuff out. I mean, the rivers around here, the ponds or lakes around here are prominent enough, and you can read about them and go Absolutely. go to them. You know, like the access isn't hard. Go to them and go to try to figure things out on your own. You're gonna feel a lot better at the end of the day. So and you know, Kevin had a great post back to somebody when they were asking about fishing on the Saco River and of course the Saco River is not a secret guys stripers are in there and the guy was asking for a picnic spot it was kind of like very specific where do I stand what type of what type of bait do I use and Kevin had a really funny and it was very lighthearted. you know he went back and forth like you know wherever you stand is a great place to fish to have a picnic and if you want to use the clams, eat the shrimp or something. It was just really kind of funny. <laughs> and the guy totally missed it. Totally missed it. And I'm laughing because I'm like, it was well written. Yep. And somebody pointed out to the guy like, hey, buddy, I think you missed the point. That was all really good advice. But he was looking for a response that would tell him, hey, go stand over here. Use this. Cast over here. This tide. And Kevin kind of gave him all the cool information what he meant was just go there have a good time have a picnic and fish because there's fish there right and and it was it honestly i maybe i can send you that 
screenshot at some point, but it was it was it was phenomenal. That's but funny. I haven't that's seen where that. they kind of miss people miss the point on that one. Yeah, and for those of you who don't know who Kevin Stone is, he runs uh, Old Oak Outfitters, and uh, he's he's pretty witty guy. So that doesn't surprise <laughs> me at all. That's an understatement. Yeah, he is. This is game. So. Yeah. Um, a don't for me. Um, don't don't share pictures um, in a fishing spot if you don't want people showing up there, like with a with a bridge behind it or a dam behind it or something, and. Um, I know this is a huge PV yours too. Um, like no one's telling you have to post a picture. I mean, just cause you caught a fish doesn't mean you got to take a picture of it or it doesn't mean you have to take that picture and post it. Right. Like you have the option to, um, you know, when you, country. yeah. And when you do that stuff, I mean, you're always going to get someone going, geez, what damn is that in the background? And then they're going to research a little more. And then guess what? Next time you go out, there might be a couple more people in your spot, you know? And, um, like I get it. We all like we love social media because we want to share our lives. You know, we want to share the things we're passionate about. Um, but sometimes, you know, with pictures like that, either think about what's in the background before you post it, or think about yep. is this somewhere where I want to see a lot more people next time I come out here? Because at the end of the day, people who fish, they don't love being shoulder to shoulder with everyone else or boat to boat. You know, so um, you know you gotta you gotta think about is it worth it for you to post those things and. Um, I'm going to jump on one here that I bet you have on your list that goes with that. Okay. Do not take pictures and then black out the background around you or color it in uh, with a marker on your iPhone or whatever. Um, Absolutely. It looks cheesy as hell. And uh, if you really have to, if you really feel the need to do that, then you probably shouldn't be posting that picture, right? At the end of the day, because it looks, it looks silly. And it's like, why post the picture if you're going to have a colored in background, you know? So... It, absolutely, and I think you and I've had many, many conversations about that, and it really always just kind of, I kind of smile when I see it now because I'm like, you know, what? It, this is kind of, I, I don't get it. I just don't get it. I mean, you're proud of your fish. There are certain angles that you could do, yeah, to help mitigate that. Maybe get lower in the water, keep it totally wet. Maybe like you, I know you like that idea of being put the net, and maybe just picture the fish or a certain angle like whoever's taking that picture of you can stand up a little bit higher I'm sure right and and get a downward shot and I've had there's some great Instagram accounts that I follow and I'm not going to mention who they are but he catches beautiful brown trout rainbow trout down here and he ice fishes in, in the boat and I can tell you right now I know I have no idea where he is yeah because it's always an upward shot you see sky maybe the top of a pine tree right and he does he does it right because, you know, he's proud of his catch. He's protecting his spots because he doesn't want, like you said, he doesn't want a bunch of people showing up tomorrow mm-hmm. saying, oh my gosh, I want to catch what this guy's catching. Yeah, and we like to share beautiful-looking things. And let's be honest, taking your finger and using it as a, as a marker to black out a background is really not a beautiful picture at the end of the day. So, um, pet peeve of mine and of yours, please please don't even bother posting if you're going to do that. Just keep that, keep that picture to show people privately or something. But... It's, Absolutely. It just looks Absolutely. cheesy. Uh, go ahead, throw another don't don't of social media fly fishing out there, John. So I'm not sure exactly when we became such a catch and release mantra type of culture fly fishing. So of course I grew up catching and keeping a bunch of fish fly fishing. So if somebody posts a picture and you know that fish is dead because they harvested it, no comment is needed. 
you know, either, especially, and this is my biggest pet peeve, you know, when you see a kid's first fish, first fish on the fly, the kid's proud. He's holding it by the gills because that, that fish is dead and that he's proud of it. Don't crush it. Yeah. Don't say, I can't believe you killed that fish. I mean, how could you do that? You should just exit stage left and go away. Because all I want to see is awesome job, bud. Congrats. Way to go. Because again, he's probably going to go into that mantra of like later in life. And he's like, you know, I've caught a ton of fish. And that's kind of what I went through was I caught and kept a bunch of fish. And you start to evolve as a fly fishing individual. So just leave, leave the bad comments out. Just just don't. Before yeah. you get sad, think, think about saying that to your kid if you have kids. Yeah, don't you make you make a ton of sense, and I've seen exactly what you're talking about. It's like, don't squash that moment for that kid. You know what I mean? And and not everything's catch and release. And I got to tell you, John, I've even seen people post who are probably not fishermen, but they'll post and they'll say like, "I can't believe you're catching fish. Like you're hooking them, you're hurting them when you're hooking them." And it's like, I feel like those people are really, really far to an extreme of saying like, "Don't even go fishing with hooks," you know. Go fishing, but don't don't even have a hook on, you know, because you're going to hurt the fish. Whereas, um, you know, catch and release people think everything should be caught and released at the end of the day. But listen, you have the legal right, you have the moral right. People love to catch and keep fish, and I don't have a problem with it under the right circumstances. You know what I mean? And and uh, you know, if a fish dies on the way in, great, keep it. Like, don't send it back floating. You know, I'm cool with that too. And don't squash someone's don't squash someone's moment, you know, either. Just keep Absolutely. bite your tongue, you know. And and kinda of, I just want to go into that the hook thing real quick because I had something happen last Monday on up in Millinocket area. And it was with a client and this kinda of goes back to the whole idea of like is a fish feeling pain. He caught a beautiful sixteen inch salmon on a goddard caddis. He was fighting it. He was fighting it. I saw it beside the boat. And he had it on for a little bit and the fish came off. And I tell you what, that same fish turned and beelined for that same fly and grabbed it again <laughs> under the under the water. It sought it back out, and we missed it again. So he had it on again for the second time. So the biggest question is, did that fish feel pain, or did it feel a tug and point it the opposite way? Yep. So I'm just going to leave that there. But that was a pretty cool moment. So Very cool. Um, Never seen that before. So I'm going to keep this one short because I don't think everyone's going to agree with me on it, but... Um, don't share pictures of fish that you foul hooked. You did not really catch it. You, you hooked it. Um, but when you hook a fish in its ass or in its fin, you didn't fool it and you did not get it to eat, uh, your presentation or your, your fly, um, or your lure or whatever. So, um, I've seen people who foul hook fish who are literally trying to just snag them. Like they're running a nymph rig through a section and they just rip the hook when they, when they see, uh, when they see fish around or they know there's a bunch of fish there, they almost just set blindly. And then when you get that fish in, I've seen people holding up foul hooked fish. Like they just won the world series. And I'm like, no, that's not what it's about. Yeah. So, no. Um, and, and of course, wardens look for that. I mean, unless you're in sucker season where you can legally snag a fish and it happens up in Alaska all the time. Sure. But wardens are looking for that. That motion is just so like that motion. You can see it a mile away. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not setting on a fish Again, when you're setting on an inquiry and that fish hits, it's it's a very easy motion. Yep. It's not a complete jerk motion. So no, it I should be a gentle lift. To, it should be a gentle lift of the rod, you know, and, and it's not a uh, like snagging 
from what I understand and what I see is it's when you keep the rod low to the water and you drag it really hard back towards the bank, you know, to set, to set on it. So, um, a trout set is traditionally you raise the rod tip up. You don't rip it back to the bank low. So, um, yeah. ooh, that's a peeve of mine though, John, people, people sharing pictures of fish they foul hooked like they, like they just, uh, caught the big one, but you didn't catch it. Well, bro. So <laughs> yeah, that was the luck of the draw on that yeah. one. Uh, you got um, another don't for us? Um, you know, it might be something we already talked about. But don't go on long rants about other anglers posts, you know. And I just said, makes you look like a dub, mm-hmm. you know, because you, you, you're really looking like you're very insecure about some you know, situation. So if it bothers you that much, then private message. You know, like I said, this is a free country. It's almost like you're trying to coalition build around your viewpoint to get against somebody else. So... Don't go on these long rants about how other people are holding or handling fish. You know, the whole keep them wet mantra. You don't know from the picture that I posted where somebody's holding a fish up like grip and grin that everybody hates. But you don't know the process that I'm doing right. where I'm having the fish held underneath the water with a net underneath it. And I'm like, are right, you ready? Pick it up, snap the photo, put it back in the water. That's it. Very quick. Yeah. So just be careful about going on long rants attacking somebody because you don't know the whole story exactly yeah and uh, and i gotta be 100 percent honest with you i am i am guilty of being the uh social media fly fishing police and saying like hey maybe you shouldn't have that fish laying on the in the tall grass if you're gonna put it back or um i'm always like i'm always like passive about it too i'm always like hey man really nice fish but maybe next time you you know you shouldn't be holding it by the gills or something if you're if you plan on putting it back and I've kind of stopped doing that in the last year or so because, um, I don't know, it's not my job. It's not anyone's really job. And as much as I like to educate people, and I do think when you educate people, just to be devil's advocate here, I think when you educate people, they may get an argument with you, they may get pissed about it, but at the end of the day, I bet they're going to think the next time before they post a picture where they're holding a fish by its gills or squeezing or whatever, so... um, it's hard. I go back and forth with that, but I don't want to be the social media police. And I think, I think a private message is good because, um, Greg Labonte and I have talked about this a lot. Like, um, I think a lot of people are just ignorant and I don't mean that in a rude way. I like rude, ignorant. I just think they just don't know and they're not educated. And I don't think the state of Maine does a great job. And I'm probably most states, they don't do a great job of telling people, um, how to handle fish correctly if you're gonna if you're gonna put them back in the waters and um, I think they promote catch and keep a lot which is which is absolutely fine but on the flip side I think there uh, I think there should be some more talk about how to handle fish you're gonna put back I mean when you get your hunting license right you have to take a course and you learn about ethics and all that stuff with fishing you just get a license and you can go I mean you just need the law book but there's not a lot of there's not no one's teaching you how to be ethical about catching or keeping fish and ha- the best way to do it. So, um. and Absolutely. But I also, I'm going to piggyback on that when it comes to boating safety courses. People oh. really need to take, the boating safety is out, out of this world. I'd rather see that than the fishing. Yeah. You know, safety, whatever. So, yeah, yeah that's, that's something that I feel very passionate about. So, I get it. I mean, I just think that the, the masses, when it comes to renting a boat or going fishing that's that's the biggest roadblock you're finding when it comes to the revenue stream of the state for sure and i i think um i think it would be interesting if you had anglers have to go through a course before they get their license in some ways i mean 
especially especially with boating because of safety, but also just for like general knowledge of fishing. Like, hey, here's the species we have here in Maine, and you know, here's the region you can catch these type of fish. Like, you're really educating people. And let's be honest, you probably take a lot of those awkward questions out of people asking stuff online if if they were a little more educated in the first place. So. Um, Absolutely, and I'm not pawning everything off on the state, saying, "Oh, the state's not doing a good job of this, or whatever." But at the end of the day, I think there's, I think there's more education that could be out there that's just not really um, accessible, you know, at this point. And I don't like being the educator online. I think it's, I think it's weird. I don't, I don't want to do that. It's not where I want to spend my time. So I like being positive as much as I can. So yeah, I, I don't really have the the time and to sit there and engage in those moments with people so sure. i just don't i just don't i, I see it and i just kind of chuckle and i just move on yeah. I, I don't even go into the threads anymore i i used to when i started i was very concerned about what people thought um and now i really don't care right. if somebody messaged me they have a problem with me i said well i respect your opinion but you know we have a deceptive agree to disagree at this point because absolutely this is my this is my business and that's your opinion so yeah i uh you know and let me ask you this do you have any more don'ts on your list there <laughs> don't post every fish <laughs> yes and so the reason why we say this is like when you're in a striper blitz and there's fish everywhere do you want to be taking a picture of that every fish that you catch because the time that it takes for you to take that fish off hold it up, get your camera ready, because now you've taken another rod off the off the boat, where you guys, like, Kevin and I always say, it's like, maybe this is a picture-worthy fish, and well, we probably have to take a picture once. Uh, we're, we're catching fish, and we're enjoying the moment. So, try to put that camera down as much as possible, and don't just revel in the idea, like, oh my gosh, this is going to be a great Instagram photo. Whereas, you know, if you do something funny, go ahead, but you know, there's a blitz. Let's catch, let's catch some fish. Put that fish back in the water and let's go. Let's put those flies back in there, those lures back in there. And I think that kind of goes to, without saying when it comes to any other situation when it comes to fishing. You can spend as much time as you want to, to revel in that fish or just get back out there and, and catch another one. Yeah. And that's how, I, that's how I feel, definitely. Yeah, and I, I feel like some people, they take a picture of every fish and they may not post it that day, but like throughout the winter they'll post a picture every day or every other day of a different fish. And, um, for me, to be honest with you, the last two years when I go out on my own, I've actually taken a lot less pictures of fish that I catch. Um, I don't, I don't feel like I need to justify myself as a fisherman, a guide, an angler, whatever, by just showing how many fish I catch all the time. You know what I mean? Like I'm confident in my abilities. I don't really take pictures of fish anymore when I'm by myself. I, I actually find it really rewarding just to catch the fish and put it back, you know, and it doesn't need all the stuff. And I like to keep some of those memories in my own head and those pictures in my own head. So not everything needs to yeah. be captured um, and shared. So Absolutely. Yeah, that feels rewarding as I get a little older. And, and uh, you know, it's it's hard because we like to share. And, and to speak really positively about social media, I've met a lot of incredible people recently in the last two years by recognizing them through social media, I meet them on the river. We have a nice conversation. I'm now friends with several people because of that. You know what I mean? Like, um, how do you think, how do you think I met you? 
Yeah, I mean, it's... I saw you on the river, I'm like, hey, you're heading north guide service. Right, boom. So those are things where... He saw chi with me, obviously. So. That's right, that's right, yeah. he um, He's a very distinguished guy. You, you, know, you posted a lot about pictures of him, and I'm like, yeah, I know who that guy is. So, you know, it's... Um, he's, the, he's the one fishy dude, I tell you. That one. <laughs> yes. He is, and he loves all species. He's a he's a fish lover of all kinds. I appreciate that about him. So, um, yeah, I just think um, I think it's a great thing, and I've it's really cool to connect with all these people who are like minded, you know, and and want to do the same stuff that I'm doing. And I think that's been a really positive thing about social media and fly fishing. So, um, I don't want to end on the don't call him. You know what I mean? I want to talk about how it's also it's a really positive thing. So. Um, you know, in closing, I think I think we just need to be aware of what we're posting and think about the effects you could have on that fishery before posting and doing things just to get a few likes isn't always isn't always good, you know. So um I agree. I agree. All right, buddy. So to finish off here, um on recommendations from a listener um uh from Massachusetts, great guy. I won't I won't name him, but he uh I know him. you know, I know he him. is, yep, you know him, great guy. Um he said, hey, you should really uh, add something to the end of your show to kind of let people know, hey, it's kind of winding down and uh, maybe kind of ask some cool questions for the guests. And then I'm going to ask these same questions every guest from here on out. So um, I'm the guinea pig. You're my, first, you're my first victim. Are you ready? Oh, absolutely. Let's do All right. So I'm going to give you five rapid fire, uh, rapid fire fly fishing questions, okay? Um, okay? Just short and sweet. We don't need to talk about them after. Just just. Here's the question, here's the answer, bang, here's the next one. All right? All right. All right, number one, keep it easy. I'll tee it up for you. Uh, what is your favorite species to fish for in Maine? Stripers. Stripers, awesome. Uh, what is your favorite season to fish in and why? Why is it your favorite season? End of September, I don't like the bugs. I like the cool air. I couldn't agree with you more on that. It's a fantastic time of year. Um, yeah. All right, uh, I like this question because it's going to put you on the spot a little bit. Thanks. What What is your all-time favorite fly to fish with? <laughs> uh, it's got to be a, a gray ghost special with a gray marabou wing. Okay, so is this something people can buy in a store? Or is this kind of your variation or a little bit of both? Honestly, it was. Uh, you can get them at... Well, you can't get them at Danny's shop anymore, Danny Lashier's shop. Yep. Um, he sold the trolling um, variation. Yeah, all it is is an orange body, orange underbelly, a bucktail, and then a marabou, a gray marabou wing. So you, you, you might be able to buy it, but you could always tie it yourself or have sure. you know somebody else tie it for you. More of a brookie fly or a salmon fly? Salmon fly. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Um, all right, number four, and this is cool because you're a guide, so you might have a good story here too. What has been your scariest moment on the water? Scariest moment on the water? Yeah, either you yourself or with others or putting you on the spot. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> scariest moment. You know what? I, I mean, geez. Nothing really comes to mind because I'm no. a very safe, safe guide. Apparently. Oh, I know, I know you are. You're very methodical and you're safe about weather and all that stuff. But there's not one oh, moment that sticks out to you where you're like, "Man, I was a little freaked out after that." Oh, uh, gosh, um, 
know, I maybe my first year guiding, um, I had a mother and son up at a pickerel pond up in Casco, and the the um, it wasn't scary as much as it was, you know, serendipitous of timing. Um, we were both watching the the weather like a hawk, and all of a sudden it, you know, thunder and lightning started happening, and we got them off the mountain and got them into their car right as the hail started. So mm. uh, maybe that was a little hairy, but we were well aware of it. It wasn't, it wasn't like a take you by surprise. And trying to think of, like, I don't think there's anything that, like, stuck out at me as, like, horrendously scary. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. You never got an anchor yeah. stuck? You never got an anchor stuck in the river and your <laughs> boat started taking on water? Okay, so I'm, I'm very careful of that. I actually had to cut two anchors. Okay. One on the lower west branch of the Penobscot, and then one up on the east outlet. And never once because I was very well aware of what could happen if I pushed it too far. Because yeah. these were bow mounted; these weren't like stern uh, mounted. So you try to drive over it with your motor, just to try to pull it off, and you try to pull a little bit harder. And at the end of the day, I made the decision just to cut. Yep. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I didn't have I didn't have any crazy ideas like that. Um, <laughs> that's my Maybe. serious moment for sure starting to take on water in the back of the drift boat and I'm like oh boy and I cut it and we went you know and you get you live another day and you get a new anchor and a new rope you know and that's it I, I remember you telling me how angry you were about that anchor so Ooh, man that river eats a lot of anchors I'll tell you from what I've heard so. absolutely alright last question buddy if you could fly fish in another state or country where are you headed Mm. I would probably say Labrador. Interesting. Brook trout or, or pike or or what? Well, I think you could get salmon, brook trout, and pike, and those would be the three yeah. big ones that I would I would really want to chase if I had my druthers about it. Yep. They're bigger. They're bigger there, right? Everything's bigger in Labrador. So yeah, well, there's the fishing pressure. I just watched the. Uh, YouTube video about Labrador, and you know, there's just no, there's two two urban centers, and that's it. Man, and the rest, the rest of it's like uncharted. And the only reason why they've charted it is through aerial, yeah, um, photography. Yep. Don't even get me started on Labrador, dude. I could talk for hours about how much I want to go there. That's a bucket list place for me. So someday, my Absolutely. friend. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, listen, John. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, been great having you. I appreciate it. It was good, good times had had by all twice. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, we've we've had to record a couple times here, and that's been kind of unnecessary. And because of COVID, we've been on the on the phone and uh, be, you know practicing social distancing. I hate using the term, but it's there. So um, oh, we're done. We're done at this point now that we're guiding. Yeah. So. Oh yeah. The gloves are off there, aren't they? Um, all right. Well, uh, th- again, thanks again, John. And you can find John at uh, petersonguideme.com or on Facebook or Instagram at petersonguideme. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Maine Fly Fishing Podcast.